0: Please be seated. I invite you to open your Bibles once again to John chapter 5 as we continue in our exploration of the identity of Jesus Christ as he has revealed it himself and John has recorded it for us. As you're turning, let me pray that God would speak to us during this time. Our Father, as we gather this day, we come to offer you praises that you are certainly worthy to receive We also come to give of ourselves, not only through the tithes and the offering, but our minds and our hearts as well. And as we commit this time to the study of your word, we do pray that you would be with us in accordance with your promise, that your spirit would be at work within us as well as you have promised, that we might be able to understand what you have revealed about yourself in the person of Christ. And that it would not only be our minds that are fed, but that our hearts would be shaped as well. Make them your own. Shape them how you will. That we may live to your glory and find the joy that we are seeking is found there and no place else. Bless us that we will bless you and be a blessing to those around us. We pray in the name of Christ Jesus our Lord, the word incarnated. Amen. Reading this morning begins in verse 30, John chapter 5, verse 30, continuing through the end of this chapter, verse 47. Hear the word of the Lord. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own, my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he sent. The glory that comes from the only God. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. But there is one who accuses you. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The word of our God, given for our benefit. May he bless us with it this morning. I imagine that most of us are somewhat familiar with courtroom proceedings, whether from reading John Grisham novels, or watching TV and, and movies, or even from our own personal experiences. Now my own personal experience is, goes back for a wise in one sense, because there was a time that I thought that I would go to law school and become a lawyer. That never happening, the closest thing that I have had to serving as a lawyer is to serve on a jury duty and to be the foreman to boot. This was a number of years ago, and I was summoned to the county seat of Walker County, Georgia, Lafayette. Silly people around here think it's pronounced Lafayette, but if you look on the map, that you would be in North Georgia. Only those of you who went to Covenant College are probably likely to know it's pronounced Lafayette there, and don't make that mistake. So I was called to Lafayette, Georgia, not sure whether I would be selected for this jury because as they say, you can never trust those preachers because they never know whether they are full of judgment or full of mercy and so neither side can trust them. But while I was waiting to determine whether or not I'd be selected, I just heard people talking and I had made a vow to myself that I wasn't going to engage in any conversations about religious topics. And I had kept that vow. Until finally one of the men who had been a Baptist minister, and you don't understand in Lafayette, Georgia, every other man is a Baptist minister, or at least his grandfather was, <laughs> had heard in the early time earlier times that I was a Presbyterian minister, and he asked, So do you Presbyterians believe in the doctrine of once saved, always saved? And I said, Well, we believe what I suspect you mean by that, but we probably wouldn't call it that. And so he rolled his eyes, but was satisfied that at least I was kosher uh, enough for him on that subject. So he asked another question. Why is it that you think so many people deny this? And so i trying to be somewhat dismissive and yet faithful. I said, well, I suspect it's because too many people... Have no interest in reading the source from which we get our doctrinal beliefs. There he was in full agreement, even got an amen, which for Presbyterian doesn't happen very often. And he said, You're right. Now understand this was early December, and he went on with the conversation. I was eagerly trying to escape. And he said, Yeah. I mean, they're trying to take Christ out of everything. For instance, all these notes that talk about Xmas this and Xmas that they're trying to X Jesus out of Christmas. And here was my mistake. Here's where I violated my vow. That's not necessarily true. The X is, represents the Greek letter chi, which is the first letter in the Greek for Christ. It's part of the symbolism in the ancient church that talked about you know, chi and ro, Christ is risen, it was celebrated. He looked at me, he stared at me and informed me that use educated beyond any usefulness. I had to agree. It was my mistake. I had made a vow. I broke my vow. I deserved everything coming to me. And then what was my reward? They made me the foreman of this jury that was to try a very simple case. I mean, it was open and shut. A redneck wife had taken a pocket knife and stabbed her husband in the middle of the street with four police officers standing there watching this (laughs) with him screaming, she stabbed me (laughs) and the knife in her pocket when they arrested her. He decided he didn't want to press charges, but because this was an assault and police officers had witnessed it, it had to go to trial anyway. In the jury room, the geniuses that were there with me decided that this was some sort of a police conspiracy, that perhaps that she didn't do it after all, and that they had placed this knife in her pocket and somehow bloodied her hand and Again, even the defendant wasn't claiming this. All they had done is drop the charges. and So that was my jury experience. I will serve jury again. One, I don't want to go to jail for not showing up. And two, I do believe that it is a privilege of part of our system and part of our freedom. But I never, never again plan on being the foreman of a jury. I just want to be one of the dunces that just offers my opinion and let somebody else filter through everybody's opinions. But we understand, and what my jury didn't seem to get, is that it is evidence that either makes or breaks the case. Sometimes you have what's known as a smoking gun, hard evidence, which also would be like a bloody knife in the pocket. Sometimes you have a paper trail, documents that can be followed that paint the whole picture and give you the whole story so that you come to either a reasonable or an absolute conclusion. And sometimes it is the testimonies of others that work together to corroborate the story and that enable the judge and those who are trying the case to come to a conclusion on whatever it is that is being asserted. But evidence makes or breaks the case in every circumstance. Now, that's pertinent for us this morning, because in John chapter 5, Jesus makes some amazing claims about himself. Shorthanded is that Jesus is declaring that he himself is equal with the living and true God that he is so one that if we see him, which is not his phrase here, but he says later, that if we see him, we know exactly what God is like because even as we confess and as Paul would later write, God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him. All of the deity was dwelling in this person of Jesus Christ and Jesus is declaring that he is equal to God. Religious leaders that were around were understandably taken aback a bit. Because claims require proof, and assertions require evidence, and defense requires testimony. So as they are in their minds questioning him, Jesus in our passage essentially turns this into an unofficial courtroom and appoints himself to serve as his own defense attorney. And what he begins to tell us is this, as his own attorney. He acknowledges that if he was to testify about himself, that wouldn't be considered valid testimony. It's not that it would be untrue, but no court, whether contemporary court or Jewish court, will receive testimony of simply one person and assume that a case is, has been proven. And certainly will not take the testimony of just one person who is the one on defense and determine the case based on whether they claim something to be true or not to be true. And so Jesus says, look, if I testify by myself, you would not consider that to be valid, but there are others. And what he does in the rest of this chapter unfolds. It's calls witness after witness. We see him calling upon four witnesses that all corroborate the claims that he made that Jesus is the living and true God. In fact, the first witness that he calls upon that we see in our text is God the Father. And we see this in, in verse 32. Verse 32, he says, There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that his testimony that he bears about me is true. Now, sometimes we could be looking at that, and he goes immediately into talking about John the Baptist, and so it's easy to assume that Jesus is kind of leading up to John the Baptist's testimony. But almost every Bible scholar, every commentator is in agreement that what Jesus is talking about here is God the Father. There is one And he testifies about me, and we know that what he says is true, undeniable, and cannot be questioned. And later on in this text, Jesus says that God the Father does testify about him. And he does declare that uh, everything that Jesus is saying is true. But at that point, he also says to those that are trying him, the problem is you can't hear him because you don't know him. Now those are serious fighting words and indictment to the religious leaders and the Pharisees who had made their livelihood and their reputations on their studying of the scriptures so they could tell people what God is like and what God is about. And they were the protectors of God's law and they had established safeguards to make sure that nobody would not only break the law but even approach or be tempted to break the law. And they became the guardians and custodians of those traditions that were intended to protect the honor and the reputation of the living and true God. And here is this guy, who they're already ticked off about, coming and declaring not only that he's God, but you don't know God. You haven't seen him, and you can't hear him. And the reason is because you don't receive me. Those are serious indictments that Jesus is making uh, to these people. But what Jesus is pointing out to them is not for the purpose of putting them down, but even as he says here in a moment in the phrase when he's talking about John the Baptist, is he's telling them this so that they may be saved, so that you and I may also be saved. It's not anger, it's not bitterness, it's not a put down, it is love that is compelling him to confront them in this way. Because what Jesus is showing them is that they had concocted in their own mind an image of God based on certain tidbits of truth, and yet the picture that they had painted in their minds and proclaim to the people is not accurate about God. And the reason that's significant is because that's a tendency that is in the heart of every one of us. Because all of us have an inadequate understanding of who God is and we have this tendency in our own heart to make God out to be something as if what we say is sufficient great A.W. Tozer in his book The Knowledge of the Holy writes this Among the sins to which the human heart is prone hardly any other is more hateful to God than idolatry for idolatry is, bottom line a libel on God's character the idolatrous heart assumes that God is other than he is in itself a monstrous sin and substitutes for the true God one made after its own likeness. Always this God will conform to the image of the one who created it. What Tozer is pointing out is the tendency that the human heart has, if not subordinated to what God has revealed in the scripture, and a humility that understands that whatever we understand about God, that even if those facts are true, we cannot comprehend. We cannot know God fully, simply by our minds. And any relating to a God that we picture in our minds is essentially creating an idol. And we need to be humbled by that reality. It's been said that God created man after his own image, and we have returned the favor. And one of the ways touching on what Tozer is saying is to know that the God that we have created is an idol, is that if he loves what we love, stands for what we stand, hates what we hate, if our God is identical and validates us fully, then we have created an idol. And Jesus is declaring that to these. He's saying, God testifies to me, but you can't hear him. So I'll bring in another witness. So he brings a second witness, which is John the Baptist. And we see that recorded in verses 33 through 35. And essentially what Jesus says here is, look, you had one whom you gave a fair amount of credibility to, uh, John the Baptist. We know that you gave him credibility because many of you kept going out to listen to the guy preach. In fact, you didn't just go out for the entertainment or to check him out. But when you had questions, you sent some of your teachers out to engage him and enter into theological discussions. And you took seriously what he was teaching and what he was saying. And so quite clearly you considered him to be credible. Why would you do these things unless you appreciated what it is that he had to say? And what Jesus says is, so John was one who shined brightly for a time and you chose to enjoy that light and now as a defense attorney, he now turns the table and puts the people that are accusing him on the defense. And he says to them, so why would you accept what he has to say, but not this part, that I am the one sent of God? Is it that you just didn't like that he said I was the Messiah? Because make no mistake that John has testified. There was a time when John said, there is one coming whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And then when I came, he declared, behold, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. This guy that you thought so highly of clearly declares the same things that I am saying, and yet you pick and choose what you will listen to from his testimony. Jesus calls in witness number three. We see in verse 36, the very works that he was performing. Jesus says, John's testimony is pretty powerful. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. What Jesus was talking about is the miracles that he had been performing. Perhaps they were well aware of some that had happened some time back, the first that is recorded is turning the water into wine at the wedding in Cana, the healings that had taken place, and certainly they were very well aware because this particular conversation was started because he had healed a man who had been lame for 38 years and had done so on the Sabbath. And the religious leaders had confronted him about the healing that had taken place in this man. And had taken place on the Sabbath. And one of the things that I always find amazing about the people who are rejecting Jesus is the way that they treat the miracles that he has done. Because nowhere do they ever deny that these things are done. They didn't ask him, what kind of trick did you portray to get this guy that we've known for 38 years to get him to stand up and finally walk. They knew he had been healed. They never deny the miracles. They only respond by saying, how can we cover this up? Or how can we destroy him for doing these things? Jesus is calling them on that and saying, these very works that you know very well that I have done, they all testify that God has sent me, that I'm the one that God has sent. And Jesus calls them all works, and he's talking about the things that he is doing that God has sent him to do. Interestingly, John refers to them, however, as signs, not because he's denying that there's a work, but because they point to something else. In fact, they point to a few things. One of the things that we need to understand is that the miracles Jesus did are not ends in themselves, they signify something. One thing they signify is this is that the compassion and love that God has for the wholeness of humanity. Not the entirety, I'm not talking about that, but the whole person, not just the spiritual but the physical as well, because the miracles that he's doing address the physical needs of people that are demonstrating that he cares and has the power to heal. Theologian and the former president of Westminster Seminary, Edmund Clowney, has declared this, that these are expressions of mercy that can be and even should be replicated by Christians through ministries of mercy and compassion because what these things testify to is they point to the fact that God cares about your whole life and the life of everyone. So therefore, as Clowney says, we need to see them as pointing to what they say about God and we point as we replicate them through just meeting physical, tangible needs because God cares about that. But more than the compassion They point to something that has even greater value or more ultimate value. Because remember, Jesus himself taught at one time, for what will it profit you to gain the whole world and yet to forfeit your soul? Or we could paraphrase it by saying, what would it benefit you to be healed for a few years if you don't receive salvation? What we need to recognize is the miracles that Jesus is talking about, the works that he had done, the signs, as John refers to them, is declaring to us that Jesus is who he said he is. There's an evidentiary value that's important that we don't miss because we need to understand the evidentiary value to understand the weight of this passage. Now, the evidence that points to is not all there is. The compassion is part of it, but the evidence cannot be neglected. It would be kind of like this. Those of you who are familiar with the Abraham Zapruder film of the Kennedy assassination it would be to appreciate that film for its cinematography and cinematography alone. This grainy short clip that is really, if we didn't know what it was about, would be rather dull because it's a car seeming to go in slow motion with the grainy film and then somebody slumping over. The value of that film is not in the cinematography, the value is what it points to, the evidence that it claims, which tells us something has happened. It gives us evidence of a direction from which somebody has made a shot, even pointing to a building which points to a person which pointed to the culprit who was able to be apprehended because of that. The value of that film is not inherent in itself, but because of what it points to. And the miracles of Jesus, while they are valuable in themselves, To understand what God is speaking through them, what Jesus is declaring in them right now, is not just the wow factor of what Jesus has done, but what it points to. Jesus says, They declare that I am the one that God has sent. Case should be made, but Jesus goes even further. He calls a fourth witness the scriptures themselves. And we see in verse 39 in the following verses, Jesus declares this. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And so Jesus points to the scriptures. And he's speaking to these scholars who have given their life to understanding every detail about these things that were written. And saying, look, you diligently search them because you think... They can turn eternal life, but they point to me. Now imagine for a moment that you have a a friend who has a mountaintop retreat somewhere in the, the hills of West Virginia, and he invites you to come and to spend the weekend. And as your friend shows you around, he points to the many unique facets about his house that he's rightly very proud of. And then he comes to his pride and joy of the house. It is... A very large picture window that is overlooking the mountain lakes and the the valleys below. Now your friend has made all of his money by selling windows and making glass and so he is particularly proud of this particular window and he knows quite a bit uh, about the window and so he shows you the glass and he points out the frame and how the things come together and then he shows you the gears that open and close the window and, and the seal that keeps it and he tells you about the climate control and and how the, the glare is minimized so that you can always see out no matter what time of day it is and you can tell that he is incredibly passionate about this and yet while he's declaring these things you notice that the sun is rising over the mountains and shimmering off of the lakes that are below that you can see through this window but he keeps talking about how you make glass you would grab your friend and say, look, I, I appreciate the details of all of this, but you're missing the most glorious thing. Is not the glass itself, but what the glass enables you to see through it. Look at the splendor of the creation as it is dawning upon us in this new day. Jesus was pointing out that the Pharisees were foolish like that, is that they had looked at every detail of the scriptures, and make no mistake, they knew it. They knew it by heart. They knew every sentence structure. They knew every linguistic trick. They could tell you everything there is to know about these scriptures, but they couldn't see by them. They could only see them, and therefore... They missed the glory of the revelation that God has recorded there that Jesus is telling them. They knew everything about the scriptures except that Jesus Christ is revealed from Genesis to Malachi. There was no New Testament yet, so you can only go to Malachi. They didn't understand that Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac was a foreshadowing of the coming of Christ. They didn't know that David and Jonah and Hosea were both historical figures and pointing to the coming of Jesus. They didn't understand that Jubilee, when all things were made equal, and the celebration is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And they didn't understand that the sacrificial system the point to the cross upon which they would place him. They knew everything except what would bring Life. Jesus, pointing this out to them, declares, the scriptures declare about me. And you don't know them because you're not receiving me. And you don't know God, which is obvious because you're not receiving me, the one whom God testified to through these scriptures. Martin Luther wrote about this. As a reminder to us, he declares the principal reason the scriptures were given by God was so that you would learn that Jesus, son of Mary and son of God, is able to give eternal life to all who believe on him and come to him. His admonition to his congregation was, therefore, read your Bible to find Christ in it, and you will never be disappointed. Jesus is declaring... My witnesses are good, but the very thing that you think you know best, that's my star witness. It's your witness you put on the stand, and he testifies for me. Now, what the Pharisees' experience is important for us to consider as well, because it's easy to look at them as foolish, but we need to recognize our hearts, even as believers in Christ, are prone to do the same thing with the Scripture. We are often inclined to use the Scriptures to justify ourselves maybe not before God knowing that we are in need of Christ and received him but we build our reputations and we we like for people to know we know our bibles we like the information that it gives to us so that we can win every debate not only with unbelievers but with believers who annoy us because they don't believe don't agree with us and when we use scriptures for that purpose primarily We are misusing the scriptures in the same way that the Pharisees were misusing them because we are not using them to shape ourselves and to experience joy. We're using them to puff ourselves up at the expense of Christ and often behaving in ways that brings grief to Jesus in so doing. Not only are we denying him by not looking for him, but we're behaving in ways that he would not endorse. We need to recognize that the scriptures are first given to us so that we would see Jesus and be driven to him. And that finding our fullness in him that we would become more like him. The scriptures are given to us to shape our lives. We need to be more formed than informed by the scriptures. It's the purpose they're given. And the other things whether the discussions and debates and uh, there is a place but it is not first place. It is first to be pointing them to ourselves. And we neglect that One of the primary ways we know that is when we get into a funk whether it's anger anxiety whatever we are just so prone to forget and so we believe but we need help with our unbelief the psalmist declare that very clearly when they just ask themselves this question why are you so downcast oh my soul and the reason that they're trying to dig in is to understand where it is that they're not believing the truth of what the scripture points to And we need to recognize that we are prone to do that so that we will find first life in the scripture and from life, wisdom. And from wisdom, compassion and unity and hope and fruitfulness. Jesus calls these four witnesses and some might even say he calls a fifth because he says at the end of this passage, and don't think I'm going to go tell my father and accuse you and and judge you. In fact, there's somebody else that's already judging you your best friend, Moses? Although I would lump that into the scriptures because he says, Moses wrote about me. And Moses is part of the whole of the scripture. But all from the beginning and the end, the scriptures are testifying to Christ. And Jesus lays down these witnesses and rests his case upon it, upon the mountains of evidence and testimony that is given before the people that demands a response to either reject or to accept it. If there's anyone who is here that is inclined to reject it, I just want to ask you this question, why? What would be more compelling? And does it matter to you that there is more testimony and historical evidence to the claims of Jesus Christ than there is for any other historic figure from antiquity or even from ages gone by? That's not only a question for those who are not Christians, but for those of us who are Christians, who are so prone to misuse the scripture, or so prone to become discouraged and depressed. Because those are evidences of functional unbelief. It's not that we've lost salvation. That can't happen. Jesus says he has us. God declares to us, even if you are faithless, I will remain faithful. That's a covenant promise that he makes to those who are already in him. But we are a people that are regularly forgetting even that which we know. And so even on one hand, where well, we would say, I accept it. Why do I struggle to accept it moment by moment, day by day, in every circumstance that I face? What would be more compelling? It's been said... Christianity is not a belief system that has not, that has been put on trial and found lacking in substance. Instead, for millions of people, the massive and striking evidence has simply not been tried. Jesus makes these declarations about his union with the Father, he brings testimony out that is irrefutable. our purpose that we would believe and have life, not only salvation, but life which is in him. Now we turn our attention to that which he's proven, to receive that which he's promised, that is found in him, the living and true God, in the form of the man, who would demonstrate love as he dies for us. That's our hope. And that's the hope of everything you've ever wanted. Father, we thank you for this word that is not only in the form of stories, but in testimonial. To enable us and even to force us to think. Thinking, either believing or disregarding. I thank you for the gift of the ability to believe and pray that you would renew us in this truth. Christ is the foundation. all of your promise. May we never forget. May we always remember. May we always honor you. We pray in Christ.